Thank the Lord for the beautiful and edifying singing, and that is our prayer, isn't it, that we've just sung. Lord, may you be at work in this next hour as your word goes forth, glorifying your great name, meeting the needs of your church, and if it would please you, calling the dead, the spiritually dead, out of the grave. You save sinners just as you have saved us. That is our prayer. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. It is a great privilege uh, for me to be here and a joy to be here. I'm thankful for your pastor. He's a, a, a dear friend. And you know, we, we have so much in common with all the other churches that are part of the TES network. But even within that network, you find people that uh, are just so like-minded. And, and even the churches seem so similar to home. And this is, this is that for me. I love Brian and thank God for him and this church just feels like home. So I give the Lord thanks for that. Thankful for all the men who co-labor with him here and serve you and just grateful for what the Lord is doing in your, in your church. And uh, I know these are great days you're in the midst of and we give the Lord thanks for what he's doing. Well, let's read again what was in our scripture reading a few moments ago. Matthew chapter 13, let's look at verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. The word of God says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain... Then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. 
He who has ears, let him hear. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you granted us ears to hear. Every saved person in this room. We were blind, but you gave us sight. We had no hearing, but you granted us the ability to hear your voice. We were dead, but you made us alive together with Jesus. And now we have ears to hear what your word gives to us. Lord, we need your help in this next hour. My prayer is what we sang earlier, that you would use this ransomed life, this clay jar vessel in the communication of your word, that you'd be at work in my mind and in my mouth, that, Lord, you would bring to my mind the things you would have me to say and protect me from anything you wouldn't have me to say, and, Lord, give me the ability to express those things clearly. And would you be at work in our hearts? We are more needy than we know. Every time we gather on the Lord's Day with brothers and sisters, this is so important for our spiritual well-being. And Lord, not only do you know of the things that we're aware of where we have need today, but you know of the things we're about to meet in the rest of this day or the rest of the week or however long it is if the Lord Jesus should tarry. You know our needs much better, infinitely better than we do. And this is the means that you've ordained for the health and the well-being of your people. So, Lord, would you be at work in our hearts as we listen, teaching us, enlightening us in a way that when we leave, our hearts will be full of joy and thanks for what you have done. And may we all be very careful to give you thanks alone and praise for you alone, producing us that which stands the test of eternity. And so we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as your pastor commented earlier, what we are in the midst of in Matthew 13 is our Lord unveiling mysteries, giving to his disciples what was veiled in the Old Testament, but now he was bringing it to light. What would happen between the time of his first coming and his second coming? As he's doing this, he is imparting to his disciples a perspective necessary for their work. God equips us for what he means for us to do. He does that by provision, and he does that by perspective. He has saved us. He has given us his spirit. He has gifted us for ministry. He has given us his word. The church is the place where we serve and where we're trained to serve. But at the same time, he has given us in his word the proper outlook so that we have an understanding of what He has done in our lives and what He is doing in the world and where it's all headed and what He means for us to be about. He teaches us to live these temporal lives with an eternal point of view. And so each of these parables that He gives in Matthew 13, this is what He's undoing. He's, he's, he's basically unveiling our marching orders. This is what you can expect to meet, and this is what I've called you to do, and this is what is going to happen as a result, and this is going to be the ultimate end of it all. That's what you have in Matthew chapter 13. And so the first parable that he gives right, right out of the gate has to do with the ministry of the Word of God. What can you expect as you go forth in the ministry of the Word? Well, you can expect you're going to meet with four kinds of soil, and only one of those soils represented salvation. 
You're going to meet with people who disregard the Word of God. You're going to meet with people who respond to it superficially. You're going to meet with people who eventually demonstrate they were never saved because the concerns of this world and the promises of this world choke out the Word of God, its effect in their lives. But despite all of that, the saving work of the King will be accomplished. The Word of God will meet with good soil. That good soil is explained by the grace of God. In other words, the sheep for whom Jesus came into the world will be saved. They will hear the shepherd's voice. They will repent of their sins. They will trust in Him as Lord and Savior. The seed of the Word of God will meet with good soil. And there will be supernatural fruit as a result. This is where Christ began in this series of parables. The next parable introduces something else we need to know, another fact about the advancement of the kingdom of God. That is, we need to have a clear-eyed view of the world we're going to be living in as we carry out this work. The sons of the kingdom are destined to live right alongside the sons of the evil one. Said another way, there's going to be evil all around us in the world in which we live and serve until Jesus comes again. We need to know that. We need to be mindful of what our Lord says about that so that we're not discouraged and we're not in any way surprised by it. We're prepared for what He has called us to do in this age in which we're living. And so we come to the parable of the tares. I'm going to examine this under four headings. I'll just give them to you as we come to them. Very basic, the things we will see together this morning, but very important. The first thing we see is the parable declared. Listen to what Jesus declared to the crowds. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a situation faced by a landowner. Verse 24, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. You have a landowner. And he sowed good seed in his field, wheat. But after he was done, after that, I mean, obviously he did this through servants, but he initiated it. It was his work. And after it was done, an enemy came, verse 25, and sowed something else. Epispero is the word referring to the sowing of the enemy. The word means to sow on top of a crop, to sow afterward. Most commentators believe that the weeds spoken of here would have been darnel. In fact, the lexicon makes reference to this. Zizanion is the word for the, for the weeds. The lexicon says, troublesome weed in grain fields, darnel, cheat. A weed that looked like wheat early on, but as the crop came into fruition, the two could be distinguished. What Jesus talks about here really happened. I mean, there, there were, you know, warring farmers, and so the Romans had laws against doing something like this, coming behind and sowing something that isn't the crop over the top of the crop so as to ruin another man's field, either making the work of harvest more difficult or devaluing the crop. And so our Lord's story would have 
you know, that resonated with the people listening to it. They, they had some understanding of this sort of behavior. Verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? The expectation, of course, being yes, he did. How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the slaves, having recognized the problem and presented it to the owner, getting his answer that an enemy has done this, they want to know about a solution. Do you want us to go then and to gather them up? Do you want us to try right now to pick out all of the weeds? And he answered them, verse 29, and said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. He understands that the root system intertwines, and so to try to remove one would be to potentially ruin the other, the good. So he says, leave them alone. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is the parable that Jesus declared. And if you've been with us at all this weekend, you know, he didn't give any explanation to the crowds. That's what they heard. That's all excuse me, all that they heard. Which gets to my second point, and that is notice that the explanation of the parable is delayed. He declares it, then the explanation is delayed. Verses 31 to 35, you have the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And it's not until verse 36, when he leaves the crowds and goes into the house, that his disciples approach him and they ask for the explanation. Verse 36, then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. What did you mean, Lord? And so he begins with our third point, which is the parable explained. What is the meaning of the parable? Well, the sower, he says, is the son of man. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. This is himself. This is Jesus. And the field is the world. That's very important. Okay? This text has been preached so many times in a way that the field is seen to be the church. It is not what Jesus said. The message is not, in the church, there are going to be real believers and false believers, wheat and tares. The church exists in the world, and we know throughout the New Testament that, and even in the first parable that Jesus gave, parable of the soils, we're going to have at times false sons in our midst, people who eventually it's, it's, it's revealed, it's made manifest, they don't, don't know Jesus. But the field is not the church, the field is the world. And the good seed... These are the sons of the kingdom. I want you to see that in the parable, the, the sower is the one responsible for the good seed. So Jesus is responsible for the sons of the kingdom. He explains you. Your, your very life is a miracle. 
child of God. You're explained by the work of the Son of God. John chapter 17 is such an amazing chapter where we hear the intercession of our Savior on our behalf. Because he's praying not just for the people who've already trusted in him, but for all of those who will come to trust in him through the testimony of those who have believed him. He says specifically, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you, Father, have given me out of the world. And so in John 17, you see a people given by the Father to the Son before time. And the Son of God comes into the world on a deliverance mission. Just as Adam was our father in the garden and represented all of us who had been born of Adam, when he fell, we all fell in Adam. So Jesus comes as the head of a new humanity, a redeemed humanity, and he represented us every step of the way. He was born for us, he lived for us, he died for us, he was raised for us, he is coming again for us. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus, you're explained by the rescuing work of our great shepherd. And so the sower, the good sower, the son of man, explains the sons of the kingdom. There's someone else at work in this field, the world. Verse 38, the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. When did he do his work? In the fall. Not trying to go beyond the parable, but we know salvation reality. We were all born into this world estranged from God. Tares by nature. Sons of the kingdom by grace. So, where do these tares come from that you find in the world? Go all the way back to the fall. Where the devil, the great murderer, the great liar, deceived the woman Adam followed the voice of his wife, and we all fell as a result. That's where it all happened. So that's what is pictured. In the world, you have saved people and lost people, sons of the kingdom, sons of the evil one. And the harvest, there's a harvest coming, you see. It's going to be at the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Both of those statements are important. When he says that the harvest is at the end of the age, we're reminded this is not a lesson about ecclesiology. This is a lesson about eschatology. Where is this all headed? Right? The field is not the church. The field is the world. And where is it all headed? That's what this is about. And when he says the angels are the reapers, they are the agents. I mean, Christ initiates this. The Son of Man will initiate this. By the way, just quick side thought. I thought about this as I was reading the text for us at the beginning of the sermon. What a striking thing that Jesus refers to himself as the one who will send forth his angels. I mean, these people who say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, they don't read the Bible very carefully, do they? I mean, to whom do the angels belong? And whose bidding do they do? Jesus, the Son of Man, will send forth his angels. So he initiates this at the end of the age. They are his agents. What will they do? They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness. 
The fact that the angels will, will be the agents reminds us the separation will not be made by the church. And the separation will not be made during this age. Until Jesus comes again, we're going to live side by side with lost humanity, and we're going to live in a world full of wickedness. And the church will not be the means that God uses to clean it all up. Now, we are an outpost of truth. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But we will not be the means God uses for this great separation. No, the angels will be the means that God uses, and His Son is the one who will initiate it when He returns from heaven to usher in His kingdom on this earth. A literal thousand-year kingdom on this planet. That separation is going to mean everlasting judgment upon lost humanity. The character of lost human beings is described here. You know, the fruit does not lie. If you know Jesus, there will be good fruit. If you don't know Jesus, the fruit tells the story about your life. And here, those who will suffer forever under the wrath of God are described as stumbling blocks. And those who commit lawlessness, they, they live their lives sinning and encouraging others to sin, stumbling blocks, and they defy the law of God. They don't submit to His law. They have no capacity to. Re- remember that lost humanity is described in Scripture as we, are, we, are, we were haters of God. A mind at enmity with God. So, living in sin, encouraging others to live the same way, and living lives that defy the law of God. This is what characterizes lost humanity. And they will be thrown into a fiery furnace. If you don't believe in hell, it is not because the Bible isn't clear about it. It's because you don't like what the Bible says. Because the Bible's clear. A place of real torment, conscious torment, because the people there are described as weeping. And there will be gnashing of teeth. So, the separation means everlasting judgment upon lost humanity. That same separation means everlasting blessing upon saved humanity. Then, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The righteous. Who are the righteous? Those who have been justified by the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. The righteous are those who've been gifted righteousness. When the Lord saved you, He forgave all of your sins, wiped your record clean, but did more than that, imputed to your account before Himself the very righteousness of His Son, so that He clothed you in perfect righteousness, and now when He regards you, He regards you as His own Son. Which is to say, on your best day, you stand in the righteousness of Christ. On your worst day, you stand in the righteousness of Christ. We are saved by Jesus. But that same people who've been justified by faith and made righteous in a declarative sense are being made righteous in a practical sense. 
Everyone whom the Lord justifies, he sanctifies. So if you really know Jesus, he's at work in your life right now. God is at work in your life by the Spirit, conforming you to the image of his Son. He has made you holy unto himself by setting you apart from the world, transferring you from one domain into the the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his Son. In that sense, you're holy, but he's also teaching you holiness and producing his own holiness in your life in a practical way as he grows you in the faith. Those people, declared righteous, being made righteous, will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. God's glorious grace will be on display in the trophies of grace. God will be glorified by His merciful, compassionate, loving, saving work in our lives. And we will be home. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of, our citizenship is in heaven right now. And in that day, we will live in the kingdom of our Father. That is also a very gracious way to describe God, isn't it? He is now our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We will be home. And then our Lord says, he who has ears, let him hear. Our Lord is saying, listen to what I'm saying to you. Take it into your heart. Allow it to instruct your life. And so as we finish this morning, I want us to do that. What does this parable say to the church? What does it say to us? As I said, these are simple lessons, but profoundly important because we meet with believers struggling every day due to not keeping the truth that we find here in our minds and hearts. The Lord preserves us. We're not going to ultimately lose our way, but we can struggle if we don't keep the truth in mind. So let me point out a few simple lessons. Here's the first one. God's plan during this age, means that good and evil will be found together. I know that's obvious. I know we've already said it, but I want to underscore it. That it should not surprise us. It should not discourage us. It should not cause us to doubt the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God when we meet with evil in this world. Jesus is telling us in advance it's going to be that way. Evil men... And evil behaviors will go on in this world in which the sons of the kingdom are being saved for as long as this age exists until Jesus comes again. Now we know that intellectually. You knew that before I said it. But isn't it true that sometimes we have a hard time getting what is in our heads to our hearts? Isn't it true that we find ourselves at times upset, anxious, troubled, maybe even afraid as we look at the world around us? Especially if you're living in a nation like we are that is under the judgment of God described in Romans chapter 1 and you see your nation sliding into the abyss. And you say, where will it end? And what is it going to mean for us, the people of God? What is it going to mean for the church? And what our Lord is doing for us, such a gracious gift, He's telling us in advance, it's going to be like that. 
I mean, no matter what nation you've lived in since he spoke these words, no matter what era you've lived in, what age you've lived in, this is what it is like for the people of God until Jesus returns. Wheat and tares left alone in the world until Jesus returns. So that evil, while it grieves us, and it should grieve us, it should never surprise us. And it should never cause us to fear because the very one who is informing us about it is the one who has our lives in his hand. And he is sovereign over all humanity. He is sovereign over every epoch, every age. He is sovereign over everything happening in this world. There's a one part of creation that he's not sovereign over, safe in the hand of God. Thank God that we are safe in the hand of God. So God's plan during this age means good and evil is going to be found together. Second, God's plan during this age means we have to wait for the return of Jesus for good and evil to be separated. We have to wait for him, for him to return for good and evil to be separated. I like what your pastor said after the first service. It's a good reminder. That is not to say that we live passive lives until Jesus returns. No, there's much for us to do. In fact, these parables are revealing what we're to be about and the growth and the effectiveness of the word of the kingdom. We're the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, ministers of reconciliation, entrusted with the word of reconciliation. There's much to do. The church exists as a pillar and support of truth in the world. But we still need to have a clear-eyed view of the fact that the world is going to be in its current state to one degree or another, until Jesus comes back. How does that help us? It helps us not to get sidetracked by false promises. I mean, if you are putting your trust, think, think about our own nation right now. If you are putting your trust in politics to transform this nation, a politician to transform this nation, if what you're hoping for is a sweeping moral revival, can we just make everybody more moral? If you think that's going to change your world, you're wrong. I love you, but I tell you, you're wrong. Some of us are old enough to remember the 1980s. I was born in 1963, grew up in 1970s. And so I remember, remember well the 1980s. I remember when Ronald Reagan was president and there was this new move afoot that for anyone who thinks that uprightness matters, and we all do, you would have been encouraged. It was called the moral majority. Do you remember that? Yeah? The moral majority. You ought to remember that. We're in moral majority land right now. If you would have told me when all that was going on, hey, in just 40 years, they will have drag queen story time in public libraries. In just 40 years, they will be attempting with all of their might to sexualize your children. 
In less than 40 years, marriage will be redefined. I wouldn't have believed it. How swift a nation can go from moral reform to the sewer. The answer is not politics. The answer is not moral reformation. The answer is Christ. And only Christ can change men and women at the heart level. Oh, dear parents, listen to me. Yes, we strive to teach our children right from wrong. Yes, we strive to teach them manners and to good citizenship. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And even when I talk about politics, as a Christian citizen, I'll do all that I can to contribute to a, a more upright society. But I've got to do it with open eyes and understand the limits of it and the temporal nature of it. And when it comes to, to raising your children, please understand the difference between morally upright children and regenerated children. Because unless the Lord saves your child, I mean, wouldn't it be tragic to have children who are moral all their life, great citizens all their life, and then die without Christ? Would you be satisfied if they were just good citizens, but they didn't know Jesus? Which is why I've said, to my family, I've said to our church, I, I would rather one of my children drag my name through the mud and eventually come to know Jesus than to live in a way that everybody praises all my life and they die without Christ. Do you understand that? So that even as you're raising your children, you're aiming at their heart. And you're doing it with a sense of dependence that only God can change their heart. Godly people raise unbelieving children sometimes. Why? Because for all of our efforts at parenting, we're not sovereign over their soul. I don't have the power to grant new birth. And so we obey our Father. We, to the best of our ability, we carry out the commands He gives us in Scripture, but He must save our children. And He must save men and women in our land. And only He can grant better days for the church, First Timothy chapter 2, praying for those in places of authority. If the Lord were to pour out a great awakening, yes, we would benefit from it and rejoice in it. But it won't be because of politics. It'll be because of His power to save. So God's plan during this age means we've got to wait for the return of Jesus for good and evil to be separated. Third, God's plan for the end of, of time means that this mixed condition will not last forever. There's the good news. I'm going to leave you in a world full of evil, but it's not going to be for forever because a great separation is coming. We live in a world full of evil, but we're never called to be okay with it. We don't settle down and find ourselves satisfied with the current condition of the world. No, we long for the return of Christ. Knowing that when He returns, He brings justice with him, and not some false version of justice that, re that reflects human wisdom, but divine justice, true justice, perfect justice. Every wrong will be righted, and the right will be seen as right. The righteous will shine like the sun. 
And until then, we do kingdom work. We pray. We share the gospel. We live the gospel. We live as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy, uh, Timothy 3.15 says, If I delay, you may know, know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And I love this description, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Back in that day, the temple, you know, the pagan temples would display the so-called glory of the false god many times in decorated pillars. Well, the church is the place that displays the beauty and glory and character of God, and the church is the place where that is upheld, defended, contended for, declared, embraced, rejoiced in. This is our function until Jesus comes. Is there a place in the world where I can find the truth? And the answer is the church. That's where you find the truth. And then our Lord, final lesson, through this parable, teaches us that God's plan for the end of time means two very different destinies. Is there anything weightier than having God's Word in our mouths sitting before me right now sitting at home in the church I have the privilege to serve while Gerardo Ortiz is preaching are men and women who will live on forever either in everlasting life or in everlasting death And the word for the rescue of their souls has been put as near to us as our mouths and our hearts. We must declare God's word with the knowledge that a great day is coming. And that day, while it is the hope of believers, is the dread of unbelievers. What our Lord says here is both warning and comfort. Comfort to the righteous. Comfort to the believer. But in great compassion, because he has inscripturated it. It's true that a, a unique judgment upon Israel was on display. He's not explaining it to the crowds. But anyone now can pick up this book and know what he was talking about. So that now inscripturated is a warning to the world. The day is coming where a great separation will occur and the righteous will live forever in the kingdom of their father, but the unbelievers will be thrown into a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to ask you, my friend, when that day arrives, where will you stand? Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Mike, I hope you don't mind me sharing this if you were sitting here. I don't know if you were in early service or this one, but it was a great joy to, Brian, you told me this before, but I'd forgotten it. And it was a great joy to walk on the campus yesterday and to, to meet Mike Jackson, who grew up in our church. And he's studying to serve as a physician and a fine young man. But he told me that he was saved after hearing a sermon on Luke 11. And what struck him that morning was, he said it 11 times. I hope I wasn't that repetitive. 
but I kept asking, do you love Jesus? But you know about him. You've heard his word. But do you love him? Peter says, whom having not seen, we love. Do you love him? And so when that day arrives, Brian prayed earlier, Lord, thank you that we love you. You loved us first. So when that day arrives that the Lord of glory comes again, will the one coming be the one you've been longing for because you love him? The one you rejoice in. The one of whom you can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You'll never be able to say that death is gain until you can say that Jesus is your life. So where do you stand? And if you say, I know the Lord Jesus by the grace of God, He has made me a new creation, and I do love Him. Don't love Him perfectly. I I often feel like Peter, don't you, when he's asked three times, do you love me? He's grieved. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, he had just behaved in a way that would demonstrate otherwise. But he did love Jesus. That's us, isn't it? Often stumbling, often failing, but we do love him. And so my question for all of us who love him is, are you living right now with this vision in your mind? That the world we're living in is temporary. That this is not our home. That the wickedness around us is not unexpected. Jesus told us it was going to be. But that he's coming again. And so until he comes, we strive to faithfully serve him in his church and through his church. And we warn sinners while holding forth the hope of sinners. The day of damnation is coming, but Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What good news that is. To save sinners. For if the Lord ever saves you, you will know you are a sinner. Thank God Jesus came into the world to save people like me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this warning and this comfort. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't left your people in the dark. You've not only given us marching orders, but you've prepared us for the battlefield through which we will march. Lord, grant us Boldness, courage, faith, hope, joy, endurance. As we strive to serve you well, thank you for having mercy upon us. And for anyone in this room hearing my voice who doesn't know your son, may this be the day they turn from their sins to embrace the one whom they now love, the Lord Jesus. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.